מאזינים לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, Life and death, let's go right into it. Zot Chukat HaTorah. This is a passage familiar to us from Parshat Chukat, from Shabbat Parah. The uh, Shabbat, one of the Shabbatot before Passover, we read it um, to reacquaint ourselves with the law of purity, holiness, uh, becoming pure after contact with the dead. Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanofsky, you want to just take us into the world here that we're talking about of contact with the dead, purification, what's going on here? Yeah, in biblical religion, clearly, and, and into the rabbis, the rabbis are very concerned about purity, mostly as something that they describe rather than perhaps something that they practiced in the full sense of the term, but a, a sense of ritual purity, which I think people should not think of as dirty and clean, but they should think of as ordered or disordered, uh, Purity means that you, uh, that you have a sense of order. And there are certain things that happen in life which scramble up your sense of order. They are very often events that happen in your body. They're bodily, bodily functions or there are things that you come near. There are substances that you touch in which the orderly sense of life over here, which is, which is what we want, um, and death is somewhere else. And we can you know, have a sense that Um, that our that our lives are contained and manageable and predictable but once in a while this most threatening thing this most terrifying possibility of the nexus point where life flows into death and death flows into life that those things freak us out they terrify us and they are symbols of impurity they're not all bad because from you know childbirth and and semen and all those things they're also sources of impurity and they're good we want those things and But when death happens, it's so terrifying, it's so nuclear in the life of a person who touches a dead body, you have to have a ritual that you go through to you know, a little metaphysical cleansing which, which befits you to go to life again. And so we have this idea, the Torah describes the chok, Zot Chukat HaTorah, as you said, by convention in rabbinic Judaism, chok is something for which there's just mysterious, there's no explanation. Um, a, a mishpat or, or, or a dean or something like that could be a, a mitzvah for which there is a rational explanation. You know why not to kill, you know why not to steal, but certain things are just mysterious. Like, like this one is taken to be the paradigm example of something that's just mysterious. I, I think modern scholars could, could make some explanations as to why the ritual is what it is. But for me, the thing that's really very powerful is the redness of the cow 
um, uh, is a symbol of blood. Somehow there is this kind of symbolic blood of the, the skin of this cow, which is burned up into ashes and then sprinkled as a potion on the person who has touched the dead body. It brings them back from this really terrifying zone where they were right there with, with a dead body into something that they can handle again and, and be a normal person. Larry, your, your comments. Yeah, that was a brilliant disquisition and actually opens up a number of fascinating inquiries. So when you were talking about order and disorder, what came to my mind was cosmos and chaos, that this ritual is a spatial ritual. It has to do with the purity of the Mishkan, later the Beta Mikdash. And the order and the disorder is part of our physical world. And I think we don't often think about purity in physical terms because, as you said, Jeremy, it's not like cooties, um, something physical that you're going to get, a disease, say, but something, uh, for lack of a better term, metaphysical. The other thing that struck me while you were talking is that this is a commandment that's addressed to both Moshe and Aaron, and it's one of the few commandments that you wonder why Moshe is included because this is clearly a priestly ritual. Um, and then the next story, which we'll get to about the rock, is also a story about Moshe and Aaron. And Moshe and Aaron's relationship, when we get later in the Parsha, is going to be severed. They're going to be split apart. They're going to be disordered. There's going to be this embrace of chaos, as it were. Um, and, you know, in addition to the blood, the, the purity of the cow's color is emblematic of the purity of which we're talking about. And everything is designed, I think, in the ritual to emphasize this notion of purity of something all-consuming, right? This is one of the few rituals where the entire animal is going to be burned, including this the hide, which normally goes to the Kohen. And so this purifying agent is going to be what's left of a complete destruction. You know, when, when you were both talking, I, I keep thinking of, never mind, you know, the, the ritual elements of it in, in our experience, in our pastoral experience, there's nothing as shattering as dislocating, as, as disorienting as the experience of death under, under any circumstance. Uh, it, it, and of course, under the most tragic circumstances, uh, it is the most, the most shattering. And, and so, in that psychic world, someone needs, uh, you know, in that context, you need to come out of that uh, out of that zone. Um, and this is what this this moment, uh, this ritual, tries to accomplish. And it's interesting that the person who who sprinkles the this um, this substance, this water, you know, mixture, um, you know, the highly, highly, highly concentrated blood ash of the red heifer mixed to parts per millions in, in living water. But the person who administers that over the person to be purified himself becomes impure. And so that is the contact between life and death, that there's a constant um, navigation here and a constant, you know, very intimate connection between life and death. And we see that the Torah is so, so hyper vigilant about separating these two categories and making sure that that the boundary between life and death is is so firm. But let's let's move on. You raise one last point to consider is that the way you're talking suggests that at its base, this might actually be a mourning ritual. 
because that's going to be the time when you come into contact with the dead. It's your own dead. It's not the accidental contact so much that most of us are going to be confronted by it. It's going to be when our loved ones die in our homes. And now we need to be purified. And we have nothing close to that. And, and, you know, it's very interesting because we go through this every time, you know, somebody in the congregation ends a period of Shiva, you know, there, there are certain things that you do. We come, we make the, you know, a last visit, I say a few words and we go for a walk. And, and that ritual of the end of Shiva actually functions as some kind of cleansing. And, and indeed, the, the end of the year of Kaddish, which is begging for some kind of ritual of re-entry, you know, it's something that, that, that we think about. I, I actually want to say just one thing about the, this aspect and then one other question about the Chok part. Um, the, uh, it, it is true what you said, Barry, that, that I think the normal course of events, this would be intimately tied with mourning, um, you know, I, I one time I think when my grandfather died, uh, I had seen a dead body. But then, as a synagogue rabbi, it happens more often, obviously, yeah. and it really is quite a devastating thing. Um, and I can think of one particular person. Who, well, whatever. The, the, just the, the the seeing of this person was was really kind of unforgettable. But. I, I do want to note that it is, it's also true that the that, uh, Torah describes the, and I forgot the word, um, you, 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 touch, you touch the dead body, you've come into contact with somebody who is killed on battlefield or an abandoned or an abandoned body? Um, uh, but you've touched a bone, a body killed in battle, a dead body in some other way, or even the grave. And I think that that's pretty amazing that the Torah is saying that every human being has this capacity, whether you knew them or you didn't know them. You're just touching a bone. You happen to be in a field and you're plowing the field and you discover a bone. Um, that bone also still, because it was human, still has this power in your life. And you should re- never relate to human remains as just dust. You should never relate to human remains as just whatever. They are human being who was B'Tselem Elohim and still has the power to unsettle your life. Now, I just want to say one other thing about Chok, which is, it is interesting to me, as Elliot observes, that there's nothing that is as devastating and unsettling as this contact, direct contact with death, very close up. Maybe you even touched the body, or maybe you even touched the bone, or you were certainly in the same room. And so isn't it interesting that that is the paradigm case for a law which seems to have no explanation? Um, The mysterious aspects of religion um, show up most intensely around death. They don't show up most intensely around ethical mitzvot, perhaps, because we know we feel like we understand those things, and we feel like we come away, and we we wanted to have a mishpat so we can make sense of it, so we can use that to um, to to help us judge and help us understand the world. Well, you know what? There's some stuff that really defies explanation, and I I like the reality that some of religion is mysterious. 
You know, interesting, I, I like Franz Rosen, <laughs> the, the, the beginning of the star of redemption, all cognition of the all originates in death. I mean, that's, you know, the experience of death is what opens you up to, to thinking about the meaning of life altogether. I mean, but <laughs> totally. And, and it's, it's what you understand that you cannot understand. Absolutely. Let's go on to death. So there's a death. Okay, death. Let's do too much death. Let's do something fun and talk about. Uh, okay, so so Miriam dies. Okay, the people don't have water. We're very sad that Miriam dies. Except the Torah doesn't really seem to elaborate on that. Maybe we'll talk about that when Moses's other sibling dies later on in the parsha. Two siblings die in this parsha, but at the precise moment after Miriam dies, it says to us, the people do not have water. And they gang up on Moses. And they do what they do. They complain. Would that we have died like the, our brothers have died before God. Why did you take us out? Why did you take this this holy godly community to this desert to die here? We, us and our flocks. Why did you take us out of Egypt? And so God then says to Moses, take your staff, gather your people, take you and your brother Aaron, and talk to the rock before everybody. And this I think rock, it says make nice to the rock. Make nice to the rock. <laughs> and this rock, the Natan Mimav, the rock will give out its water. And so fast forward, Moses and Aaron gather up the people before the rock, and he says to them, Shimona Amorim, translate please, Jeremy. Shimona Amorim. Listen up, you, you rebellious jerks. You beautiful people. No. Are we going to bring water out of this rock? You're not worth it. Moses has raised his hand. He smacks the rock. Twice with his rod. And of course, there's water. But in the aftermath, God says to him and to Aaron, for the fact that you did not display your faith, to sanctify me, you will not bring this community into the land that I have given them. And it's Meiriva. This is it's a tough, tough moment. Uh, just. Um, can you help us understand this moment in any way, Jeremy? You want to take a take a take a take a shot at this? Well, we've we've talked about the fact that, in my humble opinion, uh, there's something else that Moses does with some stones that that is really why he can't enter the land of Israel. And there's a, there's a number of textual problems here. One one of which is that Aaron does absolutely nothing in this story and yet gets punished. Moses is the one who says the mean things. To, you know, sometimes people read it that, that Moses is punished because he said such mean things. Shimuna hamorim. Moses is supposed to love the people. Now he's yelling at the people. There are those who say that Moses gets punished because he diminishes God's role in the miracle. Shall we bring you forth water? No, it's not us. It's God. It's God who's doing this. But but it seems to be that God said, you know, you should speak. And Moses doesn't speak. He throws or he hits or he does this sort of violent thing. I, I find it impossible to to think that this one relatively minor deviation is the second, the big terrible punishment. I think it's Moses is throwing the rock, throwing the tablets down back in Exodus, and that this is a kind of a cleanup story. It it gives a much less it gives a much less bad image of Moses. Um, 
uh, and we don't have to remember that horrible golden calf episode. And that would also explain why Aaron is punished here because of not what he did here, what he did back there that was the significant factor. That's what I think. Larry, you have a take on this? Yeah, so I'm partial to Jacob Milgram's explanation where he sees this as an unforgivable sin because Moses comes off as an Egyptian magician, as it were, combining both elements of uh, a magic formula and a magic wand. And once he does that, it cannot be undone. You know, there's some things that you cannot take back. And once you appear as an Egyptian magician, you're in a sense finished because God, the only way that God can make sure that the people understand that it's God who leads them into the promised land and not Moses is to deny Moses that, that task. And I actually think that is accounts for the, a lot of the difficulties that Jeremy accounts for in, in a different way. But I think that we don't often pay attention to the sin of the people here because the people betray God in some way here by asking for water. And maybe the betrayal is that they push Moses over the edge. Um, but I think that more has to be done with, with that, with the idea that they did not, Moses and Aaron had an opportunity to sanctify God and did not. And the people sin. And that sin is going to be left with this place forever since we read it every year. But why is it a sin to ask for water? Here, let so, me take, let, can I take a shot at this. Let me. So, yeah. so you can take a whack at take it. A whack at it. So, it twice. I heard I heard a lovely comment in the name of Moshe Alshech, uh, Rabbi Moshe Alshech. I, I don't know his date. I think it's 14th, 15th century. Anyway, he he said, you know, Moses is a shepherd, and and he a shepherd has got to know where to look for water, and the fact that that you know he. He has led them to a place where there is no water, makes a suggestion that that he he himself has given up on the people. And that after all this time, where where in fact he knows already that he's not going to be in the land, because with the Cheta Meraglim, the sin of the spies, at that moment already, which was at year two, th there is a hint there or not, it's overt that you're not going into the land. And he he blames the people for his not going into the land. And in Dvarim, the recounting of this whole story is, you know, I, I pleaded with God at that time. So, so there is a lot of discussion as to exactly when is Moses punished with not going into the land. Be that as it may, here is a man, and I, I appreciate, you know, so much, Barry, what you said with uh, Jacob Milgram. And, uh, you know, yeah, it appeals to to that part of, of my, my curiosity. But there, the, the story is a human drama here of, of a man who is at the end of his rope, literally, or at the end of his staff, end of his patience. The people have, have tested him and tried him and, and agonized him over and over. He's just lost his sister. The Torah doesn't really tell us what, to what extent he is mourned for. And of course, you know, his sister is the, is the one responsible for, for, for him being in existence altogether. 
And he doesn't really come to turn. And then on the top of it, God says to him, you know, speak to the rock, okay? Aside from the fact that, that it's almost ridiculous, you know, he's saying, look, God, I, I'm not a speaker. I'm not a, I'm not a man of words. You know, he becomes a man of words in, in Dvarim, but I'm not a man of words. You're asking me to speak to a rock. This makes no sense. And basically, I've had it. Well, this is not the first thing that Moses hit, as we know. Exactly. Well, that's what I said, because, because Moses, though he does have this capacity to reconcile God and the people, he also has a rage and temper. He hits the, he hits the Egyptian, and he hits the tablets. And he, he has lost it here. I, I love that thing from the Alshe uh, about... It's a lovely, uh, yeah. About yeah, losing brilliant. his capacity to be, losing his capacity to be a good shepherd. You remember the Midrash, that the reason that God picked him at the, at the burning bush is that Moses cared for each little laggardly sheep. One little sheep went off exactly. and Moses says in that Midrash, I didn't know you were thirsty, so I'm going to bring you water. I, I'm, I can't, I can't, uh, yes, the people are, are just enormous pains in the rear end for Moses for all this time, but, but yeah, th this is the point of Bamidbar. It stinks in the Midbar. It's hard in the Midbar and you can't give up. You have to keep, you have to keep going forward. So, so one of the themes that we've talked about in the past is, you know, is Bamidbar a failure of the people or is it a failure of Moshe and leadership, you know, and, and are the demands of the leader reasonable, especially after 40 years where he's going to hold it all together? You know, we, 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 we do have examples of leadership in, the, in, in our, you know, lives. Um, it's, it's not simple. And, and this kind of public meltdown um, is is worthy of some kind of a, a, a probrium. Do you think, I mean, at what point can a leader say, you know, I'm done? Like, you know, I, 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 was, I just watched um, a documentary of Menachem Begin. He says, you know, Menachem Begin is famous for Ineni Yachol Od. That's not exactly a meltdown, but that's a, that's a recognition that I cannot go on. I cannot go on. If you recall, you know, uh, during the Lebanon War, it's, it's, it's a long time ago already. And then he goes into seclusion and he understood, you know, leadership. And I think he went into a deep depression also. Um, but, but leaders who have meltdowns in public or even in private, um, I think live to regret it. So, so, so I, I'm going to use that theme of failure to go into the next story, which is, He goes, he sends, uh, messengers to the king of Edom, and and in this story, Moses you know wants to get passage through the land of Edom. Edom sticks out; it's the it's the around the Dead Sea area. In order to make a kind of good, easy shot to to the land of Israel, they need to go through this territory. It would save them a couple of days, maybe a few weeks. Um, so Moses is asking for passage, and and Edom basically says. Forget about it. You're not going to go through. Right, but the question that we have to ask ourselves is why Why did they say no? It seems to me, based on my reading, that Moses was being generous. They weren't going to take anything. And if they did, they would pay for it. But they want to take the direct route. So so why do you think, so why is it though? So, there's the great Rashi about this, or I think it's in the Rashi, but certainly in the Midrash, that Moses's uh, 
words to them because Edom is Esav, right? And Jacob is, you know, Israel is Jacob and Edom is Esav. The, the, the Midrash says that uh, Moses's words are basically a calculated taunt um, re relating to them that our ancestor went down to Egypt and we dealt in Egypt for a long time. And then, and then God, uh, we, and God sent us, we, we cried out to God and God sent us, um, sent us the, the messenger in the form of Moses and brought us out. And so this is the destiny that the people of Israel um, uh, are very happy about. But to Edom, that just reminds them of the stolen blessing and that whole trickery. And if you remember, Isaac back there says, Al Isaac says to Esau, you will live by your sword. So the Moses, with this calculated taunt, tells them, you know, everything that we knew, everything prophesied to our ancestor Jacob has really come true. And so Esau comes back and says, I will come out with my sword, which is what my ancestor promised me too, buddy. So that whole encounter is replicated uh, exactly in this one. So it seems to me that that's a, a kind of fundamental misreading of the story because the assumption is that Edom is not happy with their lot, or should we say with their lot. And, <laughs> you know, the story going back to Breshit, when, you know, Yaakov doesn't necessarily behave well, you know, like some modern leaders, he was ready to throw his entire family under the bus to save himself. Um, wives and kids. And, but at the end of the story, I think, you know, Esau says, you know, I have what I need. And I think that, you know, the way you presented it is like, is the is Israelite perspective in the sense where it doesn't take into account who we're actually talking about. You know, in your reading, and I don't mean to be Come off quite come off quite so strident. We're marginalizing ghetto. No, you the know? exact opposite is true because I, first of all, I just think that the that the sacred. I mean, I just think it's a brilliant midrash because the sacred history of Jacob's being sent down to Egypt and Esau having been told you will live by your sword, and then the resonant, the resonance, the that this story is told. I I think I have to say I think that this is. So to speak, the poetic shot. I think that this passage is told with the words from that Breshi passage echoing in its echoing in its ears. So I, let me let me pick up on that because I think there's a lot of echo here, and and the echo is from Bayishlah, where where Jacob sends messengers to 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 Esau, and the in the gifts to Esau, in his message to Esau, in his demeanor to Esau, he is completely deferential, respectful, honoring him. He is supplicating him. He is apologizing. Partly, I think, they, you know, it may have been genuine. And partly, you know, the cynical reader in me is saying, look, you know, obviously he's trying to manipulate him. And you know what? This heritage sticks with the descendants. The descendants are able to see how their ancestors, one ancestor duped the other. And that even though there was a rapprochement between the two of them, even though they hugged and kissed, and even though they separated ways, you know, you tell the story over and over, generation to generation, and you know what? You still, it lingers with you. It lingers with you that, that, that he got the blessing. 
I, it's hard not to see a kind of proto anti-Semitism here in Edom because they're jealous of him. The enemy, the Edomites are jealous of the Israelites. Israel had this intense experience. They had this intense bond with God. They had intense, you know, this redemption. You know what? Despite all the hardship, they had attention from God, and 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 you know what? We were overlooked, and so and now you're calling us achi, achicha. You know, yeah, we're your brothers, but you know what? Go 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 somewhere. This is Freddie Corleone stuff. Poor Adam is Freddie Corleone. He's the he's the he's the ignored, passed over brother. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I must uh, take exception to this to some extent because it seems, again, to me, and I, I see I'm in the minority now that you're both ganging up on me, um, that this is a position that really overlooks Edom from Edom's perspective. You know, we tend to see the world the way we think people should behave. So I always wonder about the people that see vote fraud everywhere, because those are the people who really are likely to commit vote fraud. They accuse other people, of course, but in their heart, they're larcenists. So they assume everyone else would do it, too. And I think what's happening here is that Edom's position is perhaps reasonable from their point of view, but the Israelites don't want to get it. And, you know, it's interesting. So if I remember this right. They don't. They say that if you come, we're going to fight. But then in the next story with Sichon, Moses takes a challenge. So it makes you wonder why he didn't attack Edom. So Edom is obviously stronger than than the, the Amorites, and um, they're a more formidable foe. I want to. I, 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 Moses backs down from Edom. He doesn't want to incur the losses. I think it's a diplomatic failure on Moses's part, and he fails again with Sichuan. He doesn't do the gesture. He doesn't. He doesn't have the finesse. This is again the smashing of the rock, the smashing of the tablets, the killing of the Egyptian. This is this is bluntness, and and we love Moshe. Moshe is the leader par excellence, but but on 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 diplomatic niceties, on just little gestures. Well, then being the Arels Fatayim is an occupational hazard. Exactly. exactly. Right? He, can't, he can't be a diplomat. All right. So so we can't go into everything else in the Parsha, but there's one major story that we have to do. And Barry, I'd like you to talk about. So following this, it's Aaron. Aaron dies. Moses and is told to take Aaron up to Horhahar. And then, yeah, Aharon Alamad. So, you know, we were talking about this before we started recording. And it it turns out to be endlessly fascinating because when Miriam dies at the beginning of chapter 20, she just dies, Nebuch. But Aaron's death is announced. And ceremony. God, right? God says he's going to die, take him up the mountain with with his son. We'll have the, uh, the fire sale on the priestly vestments. We'll change, we'll change owners. And so they go up the mountain, Aaron is stripped, and um, the clothes are put on the sun, Elazar, and interestingly, Aaron is not buried. Yeah. So he has no clothing, he has no shroud, and he has no makom. He's just left on the mountain. And 
I was thinking about this when I was reading the Parsha that, you know, we come to these stories with our own ideas of what Jewish burial practices are and should be based on the subsequent rabbinic tradition. And the Bible seems to be oblivious to them. You know, they, and I wonder if perhaps they had a, a more natural understanding of how death worked in the community than perhaps we do. And we, you know, cover up our own anxiety with elaborate rituals, which seem to be singularly lacking in the Tanakh. So there's no, there's no mention of a, of a grave, no mention of a, of a cave or a mound of stones or anything. Um, and, and what? We lost you. And they don't switch clothes, right? It's just that Aaron's clothes are taken off him and given to Elazar. He's commanded by Avshet, by Elbeshotam. Yes, by Elbeshotam. He, he has to be clothes Elazar. So when we talked about this before we started recording, you know, Barry advanced the interesting idea that this is not about the death of Aaron. This is about the death of the high priest. Yeah. Right. That that it's his role that is really at the core of the story. And, and this I, I find one piece of evidence goes the other way because that's the, the the expansive morning. But I think that that's really insightful, especially about the clothing here. Uh, so God says, God says to Moses, you and Aaron and Eleazar, and also a tailor, if you would please go up the mountain to adjust the, uh, to take to take in a little around the waist. But the uh, the part about this that is one part about this that is really moving to me is that it is the guarantee of the continuation of the role. And it also makes me wonder about, you know, when we were talking about the, the ways in which the hitting the rock episode, it doesn't appear to be commensurate punishment for Moshe. Well, maybe it's not any of those things we talked about that Moses did wrong. Maybe it's all just sort of a cover for the reality that nobody can stay in their job forever. There's there's the 120-year-old term limit, if you know what I mean. And, and uh and so Aaron has to die because there has to be another Kohen Gadol. And Moshe has to die because there are additional prophets and additional teachers. And so this is very poignant because he imagines Moshe taking them up the mountain and saying, you know, this is it. And, and everybody in important roles or unimportant roles, if you're a, you know, a garage mechanic or the president of the United States, at a certain point you look out and say, okay, this has to come to an end. Look, and I think that that's it's, so, it's a life affirming message. Go ahead, Barry. It is, yeah. So I, I thought for many years that what makes the Torah a really great book is that Moses dies on this side of the river. Yes. He dies with a glimpse of the promised land, but he doesn't get into it. And in that way, we all can identify with him because we don't get to the promised land either. You know, we die with our dreams on this side of the river as well. And what I particularly liked about what you said, Jeremy, is that the real message of life is that life goes on and at some point it goes on without us. Yeah. And it doesn't matter who you are, you're going to be left behind one day too. Except for the fact that those of you who watch this and listen to this, have your Shabbat with us. So, and that we are now recorded in posterity on YouTube, and you can have us anytime you want. I fully expect that in 10,000 years, they'll still be watching Parsha Talk. There you go. We are well, so- Well, I think they'll be watching it in galaxies far away from Mars. I hope so. We're so happy that you joined us. We want to thank you for being with us on this beautiful Parsha Talk. Lots and lots to think about. Enjoy the 
discussing and studying and giving life to Torah and making it come alive like you have today. Thank you so much. And Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. See you in another edition of Parsha Time.